Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July-August 2018 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Many patients with major depressive disorder, or MDD, do not adequately respond to antidepressant treatments. Such patients are at risk of reduced quality of life, lower functional status, and reduced well-being. In this clinical study, sponsored by Otsuka and Lundbeck, the authors sought to assess the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of Prexpiprazole, an adjunct to antidepressant treatment in adults with MDD and inadequate response to antidepressants. Outpatients with inadequate response to one to three antidepressants during their current depressive episode were administered prospective, open-label antidepressant treatment. Those patients with inadequate response to prospective antidepressant treatment were randomized to double-blind adjunctive brexpiprazole 2 mg a day or placebo. The primary efficacy endpoint was the change from baseline to week 6 in Montgomery-Asburg Depression Rating Scale total score. Adjunctive brexpiprazole received by 191 patients improved the total scale score from baseline to week 6 versus placebo, which was received by 202 patients. Adjunctive brexpiprazole also improved the total scale score versus placebo in the subgroups with minimal response to prospective antidepressant treatment and anxious distress. Treatment with adjunctive brexpiprazole was well-tolerated with no unexpected side effects. This study adds to the body of evidence showing that adjunctive brexpiprazole can provide a meaningful benefit and is well-tolerated in such patients. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Anxiety and mood disorders represent the leading psychiatric conditions in which cannabis is used for therapeutic purposes. Limited in discussion, however, are the potential influences of cannabis use on long-term symptoms. This systematic review, led by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada, studied the longitudinal association of cannabis with symptoms in individuals living with a baseline anxiety or mood disorder. The literature search yielded 12 studies that met the inclusion criteria and pertained to post-traumatic stress disorder, panic disorder, bipolar disorder, or depressive disorder. In 11 of the 12 studies, cannabis used in the last six months was consistently associated with negative symptomatic outcomes across anxiety and mood disorders as measured by symptom severity and number of symptoms. Ten of these studies were in the context of treatment for an anxiety or mood disorder, with all showing that cannabis use was associated with less symptomatic improvement from treatment. Despite the consistent results, the reviewer's findings should be interpreted with caution, considering the limitations in study designs. Nonetheless, clinicians can use this evidence as the best available to help inform themselves and their patients about the potential long-term risks of cannabis with regard to anxiety and mood disorder symptoms. 
An important and controversial topic presently receiving attention is whether long-term antipsychotic treatment for schizophrenia is always necessary and whether some patients can successfully discontinue treatment. Relapse rates after antipsychotic discontinuation are very high, and it has been suggested that some may be due to rebound or withdrawal phenomena rather than due to illness recurrence. The authors of the present study, with funding from Janssen, investigated this possibility in a post-hoc analysis of data from a large study in which paliperidone palmitate once-monthly injection was compared to placebo for relapse prevention. Among patients receiving placebo and those receiving ongoing treatment, the authors compared relapse events in terms of relapse phenomenology, antecedents, and post-relapse treatment response. They also looked for psychological and physiologic signs of discontinuation syndrome. The results showed no evidence to suggest that withdrawal-related phenomena could account for relapses after treatment discontinuation. Rather, the author's findings suggest that relapses after treatment discontinuation reflect reoccurrence of the underlying illness. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Internet addiction disorder, although not included as a formal DSM-5 diagnosis, has been attracting attention due to its detrimental consequences for mental health and social functioning. Along these lines, a recent meta-analysis was conducted to investigate the relationship between suicide risk and Internet addiction. The authors included 25 articles, and the analysis represented a large sample size from a wide range of different countries and diverse ethnic groups. The authors found that the risk of suicidal behaviors, including ideation, plans, and attempts, was elevated by roughly three times in those with Internet addiction. The association remained significant even after the analysis was restricted to studies with odds ratios adjusted for demographic data and depression. However, in that analysis, the elevated risk of suicide with Internet addiction was reduced from about three times to about 1.5 times. The authors also found a higher suicide risk in adolescent subgroups compared to adults who had Internet addiction. They therefore advise screening for suicide risk in those with Internet addiction, regardless of whether depression is present, especially in adolescents. Psychiatrists encountering rational patients with advanced medical illnesses who wish to end their lives must grapple with complex sets of frequently fuzzy and often conflicting issues. These include clinical determinations, personal values, regulations, and social biases concerning what's best for patients and families. These situations force clinicians to confront their deepest values and instincts concerning what is and is not suicide and what roles they are willing and able to undertake. States differ with regard to constraining or enabling legislation governing death with dignity or physician-assisted death. Clinicians, healthcare settings, and professional organizations also differ regarding how they view and react to clinician involvements at end of life. 
In this narrative review, Jaeger and colleagues outline guidelines to help clinicians evaluate patients for decisional capacity as simply having a psychiatric diagnosis does not render an individual incapable of making rational decisions. While psychiatrists understandably aim to prevent suicides, focusing primarily on suicide prevention can actually harm decisionally capable patients with advanced illnesses who wish to die. In such instances, the authors note that psychiatrists should assess their own potential conflicts and act on behalf of their patients. They argue that mental health clinicians have many options, short of providing and administering lethal means for honoring and assisting patients, families, and other survivors in efforts to achieve death with dignity. The authors ultimately believe that psychiatrists can anticipate ongoing debate and cultural evolution regarding ideas concerning physician-assisted death. Previous research suggests that individuals with depression are characterized by a blunted reward positivity, an event-related potential, or ERP, thought to reflect the processing of reward. The authors of the current study, sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, examined whether this neural marker of reward responsivity tracked depressive symptoms improvement following cognitive behavioral therapy and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI, treatment among a heterogeneous treatment-seeking population. They also explored whether reward positivity predicted which individuals would respond to these treatments. Results from the study suggest that the more reward positivity increased from pretreatment to post-treatment, the more symptoms of depression improved following both treatments. This initial finding provides promising support for reward positivity as an objective marker of treatment success for depressive symptom reduction. In a second set of findings, the results showed that a more reduced reward positivity at baseline predicted greater reduction in depressive symptoms following SSRI treatment, but not following cognitive behavioral therapy. These findings highlight the utility of ERPs to track and predict depression improvement following treatment. Importantly, ERPs relative to neuroimaging are more cost-effective and have the potential to be utilized in clinical settings. The authors conclude that these findings have an important role in the application of precision medicine and have the potential to help guide treatment selection for patients. Help-seeking in adolescence is greatly affected by the different people in an adolescent's life. In addition to adolescents themselves, parents and teachers play important roles in the help-seeking process. Although each person's influence is likely to differ, little is known about who influences help-seeking the most and at which stage in adolescence. In this study, the authors utilized data from the Dutch Community-Based Cohort Study Tracking Adolescents' Individual Lives Survey. Self, parent, and teacher reported internalizing and externalizing problems were assessed at ages 11, 13, and 16 years. Self-reported problems were also assessed at 19 years. The data were linked to administrative records of specialist care, which covered the periods from ages 9 to 21. 
Of the 1,478 adolescents who were included in the study, 20% had been in contact with specialist treatment care during the study period. The authors found two distinct patterns. First, when externalizing problems were included simultaneously, only internalizing problems predicted initial specialist care use. Second, teachers, parents, and adolescents predicted initial specialist care use the best from ages 11 to 13 years, from 13 to 16 years, and from 16 to 21 years, respectively. These results show that in adolescence, the individual who serves as the driving force behind initial specialist care use can shift over time. The authors conclude that in order to help aid-seeking, improving how teachers and young adults recognize the problems is an effective way of reducing the gap between the need for care and seeking help. A major target in suicide prevention is to identify those likely to progress from suicidal thoughts to action. In this study, sponsored by the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, the authors tested the ability of data-driven pattern classification analysis of brain functional connectivity to differentiate recent suicide attempters from patients with suicidal ideation. The authors performed a cross-sectional study using resting state functional magnetic resonance imaging in healthy controls and in three groups of depressed patients. Recent suicide attempters within three days of an attempt, suicidal ideators, and non-suicidal depressed controls. A subset of suicide attempters was rescanned within seven days. The authors used a machine learning-based neural pattern classification analysis of resting state functional connectivity to characterize recent suicide attempters and then tested the classifier's specificity. Results showed robust differentiation between suicide attempters and ideators with distinct functional connectivity between the default mode and the limbic and salience networks. Resting state functional connectivity did not discriminate stable suicide attempters from suicidal ideators or the presence of lifetime suicidal behavior and was not improved by modeling clinical variables. The authors conclude that the use of measures of intrinsic brain organization may have practical value as objective measures of suicide risk and its underlying mechanisms. Further replication, incorporation of serum or cognitive markers, and prospective studies are needed to validate and refine the clinical relevance of this candidate biomarker of suicide risk. In recent years, various epidemiologic studies have shown that the prevalence of poor mental health status in adolescents is not necessarily low. According to data obtained between 2005 and 2014 in the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, the point prevalence of depressive disorders among adolescents has significantly increased. To investigate this trend, researchers in Japan, with funding from the Japanese government, recently conducted a longitudinal epidemiologic study to clarify predictive risk factors of poor mental health status among adolescents. In 2010, they administered a baseline survey to first-year junior and senior high school students. 
After two years, a follow-up survey was given to the same students. For both surveys, the General Health Questionnaire 12 was used to evaluate mental health status and scores higher than four points indicated poor mental health. The cumulative incidence of poor mental health status during the observation period was 17.1% in junior high school students and 22.6% in senior high school students. Multiple logistic regression analysis indicated that in junior high school students, factors related to the onset of poor mental health were not participating in sports activities and spending two or more hours per day studying outside of school. In senior high school students, factors related to the onset of poor mental health were female sex, having a sleep disorder, poor sleep quality, no appetite, spending less than two hours per day watching television, being a victim of bullying, and having no one they considered a sympathetic supporter. In view of these results, the authors hope that their findings will serve to help formulate approaches to prevent poor mental health in adolescence. Psychotherapy training teaches clinicians how to listen, and therapy sessions often unfold over the course of an hour. Psychopharmacotherapy, by contrast, is often limited to just a 15-minute session, also known as a medcheck. In this issue's ASCP Corner article, S. Nasser Ghami, Ira Glick, and James Ellison describe existential psychopharmacology based on the existential tradition in psychiatry, which emphasizes that a human-to-human connection must be established for successful medication treatment. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Collaborative care models for the treatment of depression have become increasingly popular over the past few years. However, few studies of these models have been done in pediatric and adolescent populations. Specifically, no research has examined the patient characteristics associated with unsuccessful collaborative care interventions. In this month's CME offering, Ginsberg and colleagues address this issue by evaluating baseline psychometric assessment scores of patients in one collaborative care model for the treatment of adolescent depression. Of note, patients in the collaborative care model were not excluded because of anxiety or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The research for this article received funding support from the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. The authors found that patients with higher initial screening scores on an assessment tool for substance abuse and anxiety were less likely to achieve long-term remission from depression in their collaborative care model. These findings suggest that patients with elevated scores on assessments of substance abuse and anxiety may require additional interventions beyond those offered in collaborative care for depression. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the July-August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Pregnancy labeling of prescription medications in the United States is undergoing a major transformation. The FDA's previous system, which used letter ratings to convey drug safety, was simple but led to misunderstandings, both faulty assurances and undue concerns. The new system, established under the Pregnancy and Lactation Labeling Rule, aims for more descriptive and up-to-date explanations of risk, 
as well as context needed for informed decision-making based on available data. In April 2017, the conference Pharmacovigilance, Reproductive Safety, and the Pregnancy and Lactation Labeling Rule convened to bring together clinicians and researchers, FDA officials, and representatives of the public and industry to discuss a host of questions relating to the new system. You can read the high points of the conference in this Academic Highlights article that summarizes the discussions, including such topics as how the new system came about, how the new labeling can be used effectively to inform physician-patient conversations about using medications during pregnancy, and ultimately, the clinical decisions that follow. This article is freely available online. Please visit the July-August table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Appetite of symptoms have been found to predict response to bright light therapy in seasonal affective disorder, or SAD. Having recently found that light therapy alone and in combination with fluoxetine was an effective treatment for non-seasonal major depressive disorder, or MDD, the authors examined whether symptoms of increased appetite or eating behavior predicted a better response to light. In this study, supported by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, 122 patients with MDD, as defined by DSM-4-TR, were randomly assigned to one of four treatment conditions. These included light monotherapy, fluoxetine monotherapy, a combination of light therapy and fluoxetine, and double placebo, consisting of an inactivated negative ion generator plus placebo pill. In contrast to what has been reported in SAD, the authors did not find that increased appetite of symptoms predicted a strong response to light therapy alone in these non-seasonal MDD patients, although much more work will be needed to confirm this finding. They did find, however, that increased appetite of symptoms predicted a better response to fluoxetine or the combination of fluoxetine with light. The authors conclude that these two treatments appear to be good options for MDD patients with a higher appetite or overeating pattern. It is well documented that patients with chronic schizophrenia have a substantially higher rate of attempted and completed suicide than the general population. However, the actual prevalence of suicide attempts at first-episode psychosis is relatively unknown. Previous studies have shown, albeit with mixed results, that suicidal patients with schizophrenia demonstrate higher cognitive function than non-suicidal patients. To shed more light on the issue, this study, sponsored by Chinese institutions, investigates the suicide attempt rate and cognitive performance in 357 first-episode drug-naive inpatients with schizophrenia as well as in 380 healthy controls. Results showed a suicide attempt rate of 12% in the first episode schizophrenia patients. Moreover, the suicide attempters were more likely to smoke and had lower severity of clinical negative symptoms, but had better attention performance as compared to those patients without a suicide attempt. Based on these results, the authors conclude that first-episode drug-naive schizophrenia patients attempted suicide more often than the general population, 
and the suicidal patients display differential clinical characteristics compared to those without a history of suicide. In the most recent installments of his Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade discusses risks associated with the use of anti-epileptic drugs during pregnancy. In his first column, Dr. Andrade focuses specifically on which anti-epileptic drugs pose the greatest risk of major congenital malformations. He also discusses the topic with reference to the comparative risk associated with untreated epilepsy during pregnancy. In his second column, Dr. Andrade focuses on risks of other relevant outcomes, such as fetal loss, growth retardation, and preterm birth. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the July-August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the July-August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.